All day we are in need of your grace, we're in need of your guiding presence in our lives, and we thank you, Lord, that you want to be a part of our lives, that even though we are sinful people, even though we have all turned against you, sometimes passively just ignoring you, sometimes actively rebelling against you, Lord, we thank you that you offer us uh, an open door to come back to you. You welcome us with open arms, and you want to walk with us day by day, moment through mo- moment by moment through our lives. We thank you, Lord, for just your presence in our lives, and we thank you for the grace you've shown us on the cross. And Lord, I pray that as we open Scripture today, that you will help us to see with fresh eyes the enormity of the the debt that we owed because of our sin, but also help us to see in fresh ways the depth of your forgiveness that you offer us, but then also how that forgiveness ought to transform the way that we relate to those around us. So through your word, Lord, please teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we will be thoroughly equipped for everything to which you are calling us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back on June 17th of 2015, um, a young man named Dylan Roof walked into a church of Charleston, South Carolina. Many of you probably know where I'm going with this. There was a Bible study going on that evening, and he joined in the Bible study. But then, when the people in that study bowed their heads to pray... Dylan Roof stood up, pulled out a gun, and shot and killed nine men and women. Now, about a year later, after, uh, when um, the trial started taking place, the people, uh, the family members um, of those who were slain had the opportunity to speak at that trial. Now, in the intervening time, some of the motives had become clear that there was hatred that had filled the heart of Dylan Roof. Police found a website that Dylan had started that promoted white supremacy. They found a manifesto that he had created with his own hand in which he proclaimed that he was sent to this world to kill black people. And so there was this hatred that welled up in his heart. And every single person that he killed that, that evening had dark skin color. And, and you could see the hatred there. And each of the family members at that trial, after the conviction came down, he was guilty in all counts, they were welcomed to stay in that courtroom and to speak about what was on their hearts, speak to Dylan Roof there. And, and one of the men who stood to speak was named Daniel Simmons Jr. Daniel Simmons Jr.'s father had been a 74-year-old pastor who had been killed in that church. And Daniel Simmons Jr. stood up and he was looking straight straight at Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof refused to look at anyone in that courtroom. He was just staring straight ahead, not registering that anything was going on around him. But Daniel Simmons Jr. looked straight at Dylan Roof, the man who had murdered his father, and said three powerful words. I forgive you. I forgive you. Those are three of the most powerful words in the English language. Now, there's no indication that Dylan Roof was affected at all by those words. But I pray that these words, I forgive you, will speak to our hearts today. As we can all imagine, the people who who were in that courtroom that day, who who had lost loved ones, they were reeling with anger or, or, or with sadness or with grief. Yet these words, I forgive you, cut through that. And they offer uh, a sense of of forgiveness, of of a hope, at least for those who are grieving, of a healing, of being able to move on even amidst the grief. 
And even though that event in that Charleston church a couple years ago is more extreme than what most of us have ever experienced, I know that we all have been hurt by people around us. Whether we've been violated in some way, whether we've been ignored, passed over, um, whether people say or do something they should have never said or done to us, whether it's some abuse that we sustained, whether we've been betrayed or taken advantage of, maybe it was by an acquaintance. Maybe it was by a selfish sibling. Maybe it was by a parent who abused us in some way. Maybe it was a spouse who was unfaithful. Maybe it was a business partner. Maybe it was even someone in church who hurt you in some way. And you continue to to feel the pain. Maybe that wound is still there. Maybe even if it happened years or decades ago, you still have that grief or that sadness or even that anger that is there. And it can be challenging to say those words, I forgive you. Yet today we are going to look at a parable from Jesus that can help move us in the direction of forgiveness in any and every situation that we may face. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We were in Matthew 18 last week as well, looking at a parable called the parable of the lost sheep. And that was a beautiful story about how God pursues people when they wander away from him. And he wants to reconcile a relationship with them and offer his forgiveness. Now there is a passage in between the parable of the lost sheep and our parable today. And that passage in between has Jesus talking and teaching about how we as Christians are called to respond to people who who hurt us in a relationship or who sin against us. And he says, just like God pursues wandering sheep and offers his forgiveness and just goes after them seeking a reconciled relationship, we are to do the same thing if people sin against us or if people hurt us. We are to pursue a reconciled relationship and seek to offer forgiveness rather than harboring grudges and bitterness and letting that relationship continue to be broken. But that raises a question. And Peter, naturally, if you know Peter at all, you know that he is not afraid to ask questions or to speak his mind when something, you know, enters his mind. And so he asks a question. Matthew 18, verse 21. says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, back in that culture, Jewish rabbis taught that you should forgive someone up to three times. You can forgive them once, you can forgive them twice, forgive them a third time. But you know what? If they keep sinning against you, it is fine if you don't forgive them after that. It's kind of like three strikes and you're out. But Peter is wondering, okay, is that right? Or how many times, Jesus, should we forgive someone? Because Jesus was known for reinterpreting um, what, what the common teaching of the day was. And so Peter goes to Jesus and asks, okay, how often do I need to forgive someone? You're saying I should forgive them. How often, how many times before I can say, you know what, enough is enough. I've had it. I'm done forgiving you. I'm done with this. You know what, it's a reasonable question. It may have come into all of our minds at some point. How many times... Do we need to forgive someone before it's fine to to harbor a grudge, to get back at them, stuff like that? And Peter offers a number. He says, well, how about seven times? And in Peter's mind, this is probably quite generous. I mean, it's twice what the Jewish rabbis taught, plus a little bit more. But Jesus has something else in mind. It says, Jesus answered in verse 22, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 
Now, if you're reading out of other translations, your, your Bible might have a different number because, you know, some translations say 77 times. Some translations say seven times, seven times, which would be 49 times you are to forgive. Some translations say 70 times, seven times, which is 490 times to forgive. But, but if we get too caught up in, in the number of times we are to forgive people, we are missing Jesus' point. Because Jesus is not trying to give us a formula for how many times to forgive people. He's not saying, okay, uh, you need to tally up how many times you forgive someone. And then when you reach this quota, then, then it's perfectly fine if you harbor a grudge or if you get even with them. That is not Jesus' point at all. Jesus' Jesus's point here in offering a very high number is simply to say, you know what? Your forgiveness of other people, your grace toward other people is to be generous. And abundant. And then he moves into a parable. I'm going to read the first part of our parable for us, picking up in verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So here we see a picture in this parable of extravagant forgiveness. There's a king. And one day he looks in his ledger book and realizes, you know what, there are quite a few people who owe me some money. And so he wanted to settle accounts. So he calls in these various servants. And there's one servant who comes in who owes 10,000 talents. That's the literal word in their language there, 10,000 talents. What this is referring to is an astronomical debt. A talent back then was a measure of weight to measure out silver or gold. And 10,000 talents was a lot. In today's uh, finances, it would be worth billions, if not trillions, of dollars. Scholars have calculated it out, and they said, if you calculate it out based on what the, you know, what the average laborer made back then, it would take over 150,000 years for an average laborer back then to repay a debt of 10,000 talents. It's an astronomical debt. And Jesus' point here is that it's a debt that's so enormous that it is impossible to repay that debt. And that's why Jesus says very matter-of-factly that, that the servant was not able to pay. And so the king ordered that, that the servant and his wife and his children and all he had be sold, that the family would be sold into slavery. Now, realistically... That would not come close to paying a debt of 10,000 talents. But you know what? At least the king would recoup a little bit. It's a very severe punishment to show that the king means business. So don't mess with that king. But then we see a plea for mercy. Over in verse 26, it says that this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, the servant is, is grasping for whatever straws he can grab here. Realistically, he was probably not going to be able to repay that debt of 10,000 talents. But he's just looking for something. It's a plea for mercy, for pity. And then miraculously, amazingly, it says the king took pity on him, 
cancel the debt, and let him go. Amazingly, the servant who owed so much, so, so, so much that he would not ever be able to pay it off, not only is he granted patience, but he's let go free. He, he no longer has the debt. The, the king has pity on him, cancels the debt, and lets him go free. We're going to return to that phrase in a few minutes. But you just think about what that would be like to be that servant. You owe so much, so much you can never repay it. And now you're set free. The debt is canceled. And as, as I was trying to think about what this would be like to be that servant, I, I thought of George Bailey in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. You, you may know that story. Uh, George Bailey is, is down on his luck. Things are going really, really poorly for him. I mean, just everything is piling up on him. He's getting really down. And, and at one point near the beginning of the movie, he's thinking about ending his life. But then a guardian angel named Clarence intervenes and shows George Bailey everything that would have happened to the people and to the town around him had he not lived. And I want to show you a clip near the end of this movie. And even if you aren't familiar with the storyline of the movie, watch this clip and watch his emotional state. Watch his joy that I think mirrors well the joy that the servant in this parable would have. Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again! Please, God, let me live again! <laughs> Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... I mean, his joy. And again, you don't need to know the storyline of the movie. I mean, it would help to figure out where that fits in. But at the same time, you just look at his joy. He goes from things looking so bad to suddenly things looking so exciting. I mean, and things were still a struggle for him, but things did turn around in a significant way. But you just see that overwhelming joy that just overflows from him. And I think that, that's such a great picture of what the servant ought to have been feeling. 
He had this crushing debt that he would never be able to repay. And the king cancels the debt. And you would think he'd go out and just have great joy. Um, but that's not exactly what happens. There's a disconnect between the mercy that was shown to him and then what he does next. Picking up in verse 28. It says, But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. What we see here is a picture of an unforgiving heart. And, you know, the servants, the other servants who witnessed what took place, it says they were outraged. I think what an appropriate reaction. Last night or yesterday afternoon, um, <clears throat> I was working on this message, sitting at my kitchen table while my son Micaiah was taking a nap in preparation for fish day fireworks. And he came down uh, stairs after his nap, and we were just talking while I was at the kitchen table. And, and, and he asked me what I was working on, and we, I, I told him the parable. And he too, he was shocked at what took place. I mean, he was upset because, you know what, you look at the, the tremendous mercy that the servant was shown, and then he goes out and refuses to show mercy for a much smaller debt. It makes no sense, at least from, from a level when we look at the big picture here. But what we see here is an unforgiving heart. And the man uh, was owed, the first servant was owed by someone else, just a hundred talents, or not a hundred talents, a hundred denarii. Denar- a denarius was simply a little coin. And, and that coin represented about one day's worth of pay for an average laborer back then. So, you know, a hundred denarii, um, that's not an insignificant amount of money. I mean, it's a hundred days' pay for an average laborer. So, you know, in our culture, that might be a few thousand dollars. It, it's a chunk of money, but it is minuscule compared to the astronomical debt that this first servant owed. Yet, he had an unforgiving heart. And even though there's a plea for mercy, it's a plea for mercy in verse 29 that sounds very much like the first servant's plea for mercy to the king when when it says that his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. There's a plea for mercy. Instead, that first servant, who'd been shown so much mercy and grace by the king, offered only mercy. Harshness. It says they had him thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. What you see here is an unforgiving heart. It is ugly when you really think about what's going on here. Now you move on in this passage, word gets back to the king, and it says, Then the master called the servant in, verse 32. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy in your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. Now, verse 33 has a really powerful question. When it says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? This idea of you received such amazing mercy. Should you not pass that mercy on to those around you? The concept here is that forgiven people forgive people. That when we experience forgiveness from other people, that we then pass that forgiveness on to those around us. And we see at the end of this passage, verse 35, 
Jesus says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And so this is a parable that is describing the kingdom of God. It's describing the kingdom of God. And Jesus made that clear at the very beginning as well. Verse 23 when he said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with the servants. And so this is a description of the kingdom of God. And the bottom line that what Jesus is communicating here is that unforgiveness is inconsistent with kingdom citizenship. That if we are followers of Jesus, if we desire to be a part of the kingdom of God, which we should desire that, that we should be forgiving people. Let me explain what, what, what Jesus is talking about here, kind of the big story of what's going on. Beginning in this passage, Jesus, or Peter said to Jesus, how many times should I forgive people? That's, it's a relevant question. And then Jesus tells this parable as a way of basically saying, okay, that's a good question. Let me tell you what kingdom people are like. Let me describe to you how you ought to live if you are a follower of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then he tells this parable. And the parable, when we interpret it and apply it, we understand that kingdom people start off with an astronomical debt. Because Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that we all have, have a debt to pay, and it's an enormous debt because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We all owe an astronomical debt to God because we are sinful people. God is a holy God. It's an astronomical debt. And because of that debt, we ought to be thrown in debtor's prison. We really should be. But... Um, there's no way that we can ever repay that debt on our own. And so we deserve to spend eternity in that prison, which is known as hell. So kingdom people start off with an astronomical debt that we can never repay on our own. We have to understand that God had mercy. He sent Jesus to this world. Jesus was sinless, meaning he did not have his own death penalty to pay. He did not owe a debt for any sin that he had committed. But he went to the cross in order to pay that debt that we owe. He absorbed God's wrath against sin that should have been ours. But he did it out of love so that we could go free. So what we see here is that pity, that mercy that God showed to us. And then he canceled our debts and set us free. That is the mercy that God shows us, which the king in this parable was showing to his servant. Now, as we think about the idea of, of how do we live this life of forgiveness, it's not just recognizing that, you know what, we've been forgiven a lot, so we should forgive others. No, God then sends the Holy Spirit, and everyone who trusts in Christ, he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to transform us from the inside out. And that's how Jesus can say at the end of the parable that, that we must forgive our brother and sister from our heart. It's not mere lip service. We've all been around that lip service where someone says, yeah, I forgive you, or I'm sorry. I mean, Jesus wants us to mean it from our heart. And what that means is that we need a heart transplant. And thankfully, that's what God offers us. I think of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 27, or 28 and 29, or I'm sorry, 26 and 27. Um, God says, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow all my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God promises that when we come to faith in Christ, we are given a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are made into a new creation. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us to transform us, to give us that heart that truly wants to forgive other people around us. You know, forgiveness is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we can merely do ourselves. We need to forgive other people. It doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy. I'm sure we can all think of examples in our lives where we have been hurt in a big way. And forgiveness is hard. We may struggle to forgive people. And you know what? Struggling is a part of still living in this broken world and still having that sinful nature that's at war within us. But there's a big difference between struggling to forgive because we want to, but it's hard. There's a big difference between that and refusing to forgive. And what Jesus is addressing here in this parable specifically is a refusal to forgive, a hard-heartedness that says, you know what, I am not forgiving in this situation. I'm going to harbor the bitterness. I want to keep the grudge. I may even want to get even. Jesus says that has no place in the heart of a follower of Jesus. Because if we are forgiven people, forgiven by God, we are to extend that forgiveness to those around us. Now, We see that Jesus wants to transform us. He wants to make us into forgiving people. The question is, how do we do that? How do we grow in this besides just working hard and saying, I mean, thankfully, he does give us the Holy Spirit to transform us and give us that forgiving heart. But you know what? Some of us may have pain in our lives that goes back a long way. Maybe not just months or years. maybe, Maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. It's pain that's still there that, frankly, we... We have not really forgiven that. And we're still just holding the grudge, holding on to that bitterness. How do we forgive in the way that Jesus is calling us to? Well, coming back to this parable, I want to just offer four different points of how we can grow in forgiving others. One is the importance of meeting the king. Meeting the king. You look at this parable, and if you just started in the middle of the parable, you would have missed something important that happened at the beginning of the parable. Because at the beginning of the parable, the servant has a meeting with the king. And the king offers him amazing, uh, unparalleled forgiveness. And that changes everything. Because without meeting that king first, you know, maybe that servant would be justified in demanding that the other servant repay the hundred denarii. But because the first servant has already met the king, has already experienced such forgiveness from the king, it should change everything. Because when we recognize that our king is humble and patient, it should make us humble and patient as well. When we recognize that our king is loving and that he demonstrates that love through Jesus dying in our place to to forgive us, it should make us loving as well to other people. When we recognize that our king is a forgiving God who does not hold our sins and transgressions against us, but when we come to faith in Christ, he lets us go free. That should make us forgiving toward others as well. Having a loving king transforms everything. And so the question is, have we met the king, meaning God? Have we experienced his love and his forgiveness in our lives? 
Because if we have not, that certainly is one of the reasons why it may be a struggle to forgive others. And the offer is always open, as we looked at last week in the parable of the lost sheep. The offer is always open for anyone and everyone, no matter what our background, to come to the king and experience his love and forgiveness. All that requires is just coming before him, bowing down, just like the servant did in the parable, and saying, you know what? I have this debt. Have mercy on me. There's no way I can repay this debt. You can just do that in prayer of saying, God, I know I have a debt because of my sin that I can never repay. Thank you that you sent Jesus to pay that debt for me. Please have mercy on me and transform me from the inside out. That's as simple as it comes. I mean, to to having that meeting with the king and experiencing his love and his forgiveness, because that's so key to living a life of forgiveness and our relationship with others. We have to meet the king. The fuel for our forgiveness of others is God's forgiveness of us. Now, moving on, we also have to remember in this parable the whole story of forgiveness. Because so often when we face a situation in our life where we've been hurt and when we're angry and when we're bitter and we're struggling to forgive, the issue is that we are picking up in the middle of the story. Because oftentimes we're saying, well, they did this or they said that or, or this is what happened to me. And when that's where we start in whatever topic it is, we are starting in the middle of the story. Because think about this parable. There's something big that happened before this servant felt like he was wronged because the guy wasn't repaying 100 denarii. He'd already met the king. And for us, we have to remember the context of the broader story of our lives. That if we have met the king and we've received his forgiveness and love, that should, that should shape how we treat everyone around us. Now, oftentimes, we downplay the, the, the gravity of our sin and we magnify the wrongdoings that other people commit against us. So we think, well, our sin against God isn't that bad. And and then we think, well, the the thing that someone else did to us is is really bad. We need to get these things in the right proportion. Remember, the first servant owed owed 10,000 talents. The second servant only owed 100 denarii. There's a big difference there. God forgives us in a huge astronomical manner. And that, as we put it into perspective, helps us have a forgiving heart toward others around us. So the place to start when we are struggling with hurt and pain is to remember how much God has forgiven us. And then we become a conduit to say, you know what? God's forgiven me of all these things. I can be like God and forgive people around me just as God empowers me to do so. We can't do it in our own strength, but we need God to help us. Now thirdly, as we look at this passage in terms of helping, uh, helping us grow in forgiveness of others, is to check our gut. Now you may be, may be wondering, what's that talking about? Remember how the king had pity on his servant? Pity comes from a Greek word that um, the same word um, is translated sometimes as compassion. The idea of compassion or pity biblically has to do with an ache in your gut. It's this intestinal type of thing where you feel it inside when you have compassion on someone or pity on someone. And that king, he was moved internally when he saw the plight of a servant and he heard the servant's plea. He had compassion on that servant. And that's what moved him to offer forgiveness. Oftentimes when we struggle to forgive someone, it's because we don't have compassion. Our heart has grown hard. 
But remember Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, he's going and he says he sees all these crowds and multitudes of people and he said that, that he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw deeper than just the surface level. Oftentimes when we're struggling to forgive someone, it's because we're looking on the surface level of they did this or they said this or they're, they're, they're acting this way. And to be sure, those things can be really bad. But in order to, to achieve forgiveness... We need to look deeper than just the surface level, than just the actions and the words. We need to look internally and have that compassion as we see, you know what? They're a broken person. I'm a broken person. God's shown me such compassion. I need to look deeper in what's in them and see, you know what? They're broken and, and they need a healing. And then we can pray for God to do that healing work in them. Rather than harboring a grudge, we can actually pray for them that they will experience God's mercy and healing inside of them, just as we have. So we need to check our gut and ask, you know what, do I have this compassion? Because this compassion that really can move us to forgiveness. And finally, we see in this passage, and just practically as well, the importance of setting everyone free. That's the idea of, of you know, that was canceled, and the servant was let go free. He no longer had anything hanging over him. I think of a, a story. This is kind of the sermon of of. Big, hard stories. Story back on New Year's Day of 1982. Uh, a young man, he was 17 years old, named Kevin Tunnell. He was driving drunk on that New Year's Day, and he created an accident that killed an 18-year-old girl. After the criminal trial, this girl's uh, parents filed a civil suit against Kevin and, and sued him for $1.5 million dollars. Now, it became clear that they were not going to win that full suit for $1.5 million. So they settled with him for a fine of $936. You may be wondering, why $936? Well, let me explain a little bit more. This $936 was to be paid $1 at a time on the first Friday of each month for the next 18 years. Why the first Friday of each month? Because it was on the first Friday of the month that this daughter died. Why for 18 years? One year, one year for each year that that daughter had lived on this earth. It was to continually remind Kevin Tunnell of what he had done. And, you know, he was required by the court to speak about drunk driving to groups for one year. And he became so passionate about speaking against drunk driving that he continued that for year after year after year. And multiple times over those years, he asked the parents, could I just give a lump sum? Could I just give a lump sum? And they said, no. You need to continue doing this $1 every month for 18 years. And when he wrote out that check, he was instructed by the court to put it in the mail, and the check had to be uh, made out, not to the parents, but to the daughter, to continue to remind him of the life that he took in his drunk driving. Now, I recognize this is, this is a, a challenging thing to think about, about losing a daughter like that. But this was something where it was continually held over his head for 18 years. And there were several times during those 18 years that he did not send in the check. And it wasn't because he forgot. And it wasn't because he was trying to defy the court or be mean to the parents. But he did not send that check, he said, because it hurt too much. But each time he didn't send that $1 check, the parents took him back to court to force him to pay that dollar. 
each month for 18 years. And I think about the reality of what's going on here, and I do not want to diminish the pain of losing a daughter in a car accident like that. I don't want to diminish that at all. I can't imagine um, how, how devastating that would be. At the same time, I think of how Kevin Tunnel was kept in bondage because of unforgiveness. The purpose behind this payment plan was to continually remind him of the wrong that he had done so that he, for the next 18 years, could not get beyond it. It would continue to hang over his head. But we have to recognize that he was not the only one in bondage by that arrangement. The family was in bondage as well. Because they, over those next 18 years, because of those payments coming in, because of how they continue to enforce that, they had to continually be reminded of the loss that they had sustained. And it prevented them from really being able to, to move on to the new normal, to, 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 to grieve well. They just continued to harbor the anger and, and the, the vengeance and, and the hurt rather than healing. We have to understand, uh, this is not my quote, but it's one I, I, I've heard and, and I think it's very poignant. The unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping someone else will die. The unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping someone else will die. When we choose to forgive someone, it allows them as someone made in the image of God, to heal. There may still be consequences. There, there should be consequences at times with drunk driving or with other things. There may, may very well still be consequences. But with forgiveness, we choose to release the issue to God and say, you know what, I'm not going to continue to dwell in this bitterness, in this grudge, in this anger, because we recognize it's not going to help anyone. Instead, we say, God, I'm going to trust this to you. And I'm going to, to uh, forgive. Because I know that if I hold bitterness in, it's going to continue to poison other people. And it's going to poison me as well. And you compare that, the, the reaction of, of that family, demanding $1 a month, to, to the reaction of Daniel Simmons Jr. I mean, he too was deeply wronged. He too was deeply hurt when his father was murdered in that church a couple years ago. But when he says, I forgive you, if he means that from the heart... It sets him on a course of healing so that he does not have to continue to, to have those feelings of vengeance and anger and bitterness. Yes, he was deeply wronged. Yes, odds are good that, 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 um, that, that whatever, not Daniel Roof, but um, Dylan Roof, thank you. He, he, as far as we know, he, he's never repented. But Daniel Simmons Jr. is able to move on and experience a, a, a slow healing, even though nothing can replace the loss of his dad, because he has chosen to forgive. And this is one of the reasons why we have to understand the importance of, of forgiving others, just as God has forgiven us. Forgiven people forgive people. And when we look at this parable, and we look at the teaching of Scripture, we have to understand that, that God offers a higher standard to us than merely what's known as the golden rule. The golden rule says do unto others as you would have them do to you. But God's standard for us raises higher. We are to do to others what God has done for us. God extends forgiveness and mercy to us, and we are called to do the same to those around us. And I think of Ephesians 4.32, where it says, Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you.
God forgives us. We're called to pass that on to those around us. Let's pray. Father, forgiveness is hard. We are thankful that you offer us forgiveness through Jesus. Lord, we did not deserve that. As we sang earlier, we cannot earn that. But we say thank you that you took mercy on us. You had compassion on us while we were yet sinners to forgive us. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will, if we have not already, come to that point where we have that meeting with you by faith and trust you to, to forgive us of our sins, that we will experience that overwhelming forgiveness that only you can offer. And Lord, as we journey through life in this broken world, we, we all recognize that we face hardships, and some are incredibly heartaching. I mean, I think of, of the death of loved ones, I think especially the circumstances that we've talked about today, whether it's murder or drunk driving. or We can all share our own stories as well. They may not be as obviously extreme, but they still cause hurt and pain. Lord, I pray that you will do a renewing heart, a work in our hearts. I pray that you will impress upon us the magnitude of your forgiveness of us. And Lord, in these situations where we have hurt and pain, where we may be angry or we may be bitter or we may be harboring grudges or we may want to get even with someone else, I pray that you will do a redeeming work in our hearts first of all, reminding us of the depth of your love for us and giving us a compassion for those who have hurt us. Lord, whether or not they repent, Lord, I pray that you will help us to forgive, to not harbor bitterness and grudges, to not, not, not seek vengeance, but to trust that to you and to overcome evil with good, as Paul says in Romans 12. So Lord, help us to be people who forgive, who forgive because you have first forgiven us and who embody your grace and your mercy those around us. And Lord, in those times where it's hard, in those times where we have pain that just nothing on this earth can fully heal. Lord, I pray that we will experience the truth that your grace is sufficient for us, for your power is made perfect in weakness. Lord, guide us in these tricky matters. Help us to live out your forgiveness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.